Amen. Thank you, Jonathan. Uh, good morning. My name is Drew Bennett. I'm uh, the pastor here at Church of the Redeemer. Uh, I wanted to say thank you to so many of you for coming and celebrating here with us, not only the start of this Advent season, but our first Sunday here in our new facilities. Um, about a year ago, we planted a church here in Winter Haven, meeting at Winter Haven High School with about 65 of us. And this morning I was told there are about 240 of us here. Um, so that is cause for great celebration uh, and great fear and trembling for the pastor. Um, but we are so excited. I know some of you traveled uh, to be here because you love people who are part of our church. And some of you are here um, just because of the excitement. And what a blessing um, to, to remember even today the legacy of Covenant Presbyterian churches. They met here for so many years and their generosity to us uh, and the start of our ministry here in this building. We are, we are overwhelmed with gratitude. Uh, this morning, we are going to begin a series that actually, if I let the cat out of the bag, is going to take us about a year and a half to complete. And we've never done anything like this before, um, but we're going to begin this. There we go. God said, let there be light. That just means I'm going to start sweating up here, probably, is what that means. Um, we're, going to, we're going to be walking through the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, and we're going to begin this Advent season by looking at the first few chapters of the Gospel of Matthew, which are really framed by five quotations from the Old Testament that Matthew offers. And so we're going to be looking each week at Matthew says five times, and thus it fulfilled the words of the prophet as he relates it to the life and ministry of Jesus. And so this morning, as we've already read from Isaiah 7, the prophecy of the coming Emmanuel who would be God with us. And then we're going to read and you'll see in your worship folder in Matthew Beginning in verse 18, we're skipping over the genealogy. You're welcome. Or I guess I should say thank you since I don't have to pronounce all those names there. But beginning in verse 18, all the way to verse 25, uh, this, this amazing, this amazing story of a virgin who gives birth to a child. Let me let this overwhelm you. Just marvel at the reality of what we're being told happened so long ago here in the birth of Jesus Christ. So Matthew chapter 1, verse 18, now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son. And he called his name Jesus. This is God's word. Uh, the goal of Advent, as Jonathan has already told us, is really to learn to wait. The goal of this season of the year that we're celebrating is to teach us how at the core of our faith is the idea of hope. That we hope, we expect. We wait, and, we re and the reason we have to wait is because things are not yet as they one day will be. We are a people who live in between the first and the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And so while there's much that he is doing in us and through us and around us, there is much yet that he has still to do. And for now, we live in a world that is still in many ways full of sadness and despair, sickness and disease, hopelessness and fear. But it will not always be that way. If you're not a Christian or if you're new to Christianity and you're here this morning, let me just say to you, we believe that the world is not just destined to continue along as it is currently going until some unforeseen cataclysmic events brings things on life, you know, brings life on earth to an end. We believe and the Bible teaches that Jesus came from heaven to earth to rescue us and that after his years on this earth were done, he ascended back into heaven to sit at the right hand of his father on high And though he is there now, he will come again in power and might and with great glory. And he will bring a new heavens and a new earth with him. And when he comes, things will finally be as he intended them to be from the very beginning. Everything, I love the way, everything sad will come untrue. The Bible says he will dwell. God will dwell with us, with us again. He will wipe away every tear from our eyes. There will be no more pain, no more sickness, no more death. And so to posture ourselves this Advent season, we are called to hope. To take all of our sadness and our brokenness and our disappointment and our shame and to look at it through Jesus's promise to come again to make all things new and we're called to repent, to stop trying to arrange for our lives, to stop trying to work things out on our own, to stop living in fear of what we cannot control and to step into the story of what God is doing through Jesus Christ to rescue the world from sin and death. That's what Advent's about. It's a time of wonder and waiting and hope. And so for the next five weeks, leading up to the beginning of the new year, we're going to be looking at these chapters in Matthew's Gospel. Five passages anchored by Matthew's use of the Old Testament to explain the reality of Jesus' coming and the implications for our lives. And today, we're going to look at the reality of Jesus as our Savior. Jesus is our Savior. That's what Matthew's trying to teach us here in these beginning verses. He's our Savior. So, three things that we want to see together this morning. First, the need for a Savior. If He's our Savior, if Jesus is our Savior, if that's what Matthew is telling us, then three things. First, our need for a Savior. Secondly, the work of the Savior. And then thirdly, the name of the Savior. The need, the work, and the name. Those three things, let's look together in this gospel beginning right here in Matthew chapter 1. You see, Matthew is writing to a mainly Jewish audience. And that's something that we should keep in mind that we'll come back to as we go throughout this gospel. As the opening pages of Matthew's gospel unfold, there have been, some scholars say, 400 years of silence There have been no prophets. There have been no communications from God. The people of God have lived in utter silence for 400 years. And the result was there was a great deal of Messiah-seeking going on in this day that was born out of the difficulty of the situation. See, God had been silent for a long time. You know, it, it, it felt as if he had abandoned his people. And you can imagine. You can imagine what it would have been like. Because if you've read the Old Testament at all. Can you imagine what it would have been like to be a Jew in that day and to go to the prophets and to read in the prophets all of the words of hope and promise and all of the things that God said, I'm going to come and I'm going to do these things for you. And here it's been 400 years 
and they look and they read of all that God says he's going to do. And then they turn and they look at their circumstances and the reality of the situation they find themselves in. And there just feels like there's this huge disconnect between what God says he's going to do and how things have really played out in their lives. And you give hundreds of examples. And they were really in the middle of a crisis of faith. 400 years. And God had not done any of the things he'd promised. I mean, 400 years. America's only 235 years old. 400 years. They were in crisis. Now, Matthew links the situation of Israel in those days leading up to the coming of Jesus to the events recorded in Isaiah 7. So we've got to go to Isaiah 7. I, I should have printed it for you as part of the sermon passage. I didn't. So you're going to have to refer back to it in your call to worship in your worship folder. But in Matthew 7, excuse me, in Isaiah 7, the prophecy, as it is originally given, comes to King Ahaz. And it's the prophecy of a child that will be born that will be called Emmanuel. Now, in context, if you want to read Isaiah 7 later, you can. But Rezin, who is the king of Syria, and Pekah, who is the king of Israel. So you've got the neighboring nation of Syria. You've got the northern part of the nation of Israel that is split from the southern part at this point, and they're enemies. And so the northern part of Israel and the, the neighboring nation have joined in an alliance against uh, Judah in the south. Ahaz, the king of Judah, is despondent. He realizes he doesn't stand a chance against this military alliance that's coming against him. He's full of doubt. He's full of uncertainty. He doesn't believe in God's power uh, to save him. He's, you know, God's silent. He's abandoned me. And Isaiah says, and it's a beautiful little phrase, in Isaiah 7, 2, he says, his heart shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. Anybody there this morning? His heart shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. He's in crisis. Now, what I want you to see is both Matthew 1 and its foreshadowing in Isaiah 7 capture the crisis we live with in our own lives i mean what struggles are you going through I mean, where have you come face to face with your sin and brokenness or the sin and the brokenness of others and you're just in despair I mean, are you facing overwhelming odds are you persevering in faith or are you ready to give up does god feel distant to you you know do you feel like he's abandoned you are you in crisis now, there's a movie coming out in the next couple of weeks based on a book by Cormac McCarthy called The Road. Uh, it's a great reading for Advent because, quite honestly, it looked interesting to me, and so I bought it, and I've been reading it. Uh, but it is really hard to read because it is so cynical and, and honestly so depressing. Uh, it's the story of a father and a son who are, who are traveling from the north uh, to the south trying to get to the coast, and it's set in, in this, like, um, apocalyptic, you know, post-nuclear holocaust or post-pandemic virus, you know, United States. And the, the father and the son are traveling and against all odds. And there's, you know, most people in the world have died and the sun doesn't shine. And so nothing's growing. And I mean, it's just this really engrossing, depressing uh, tale of, of just the hardship of this father as he tries to care for his son and, and make sure he, he doesn't fall prey to other people and or whatever. But what struck me in reading the story, and I think because it's an underlying accusation that runs through the whole genre, if you know what I'm talking about, is this, is this accusation, you know, there is no God. And the characters 
are so overwhelmed, and rightly so, by their sadness and their suffering that they lose heart and they lose their faith. I mean, they, they start to say, you know, there can't be a God or it wouldn't be this way. I mean, it couldn't possibly be this way if there were a God. And there's one point in the story where the author writes of the main character, the father, uh, who's watching his son starve to death and is having to, you know, figure out, you know, what do you what do you make of all of this? And he 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 characterizes the father. He goes down to a creek and he says he raised his face to the paling day. Are you there? He whispered. Will I see you at the last? Have you a neck by which to throttle you? Have you a heart? Damn you, oh God. He whispered, oh God. You know, and I thought, I mean, that that is really it. I mean, that that's where most people in our culture live, because you see, I think the story speaks to something that is much deeper in all of us, that we're not <laughs> we're not facing extinction. You know, or anything like that, things are pretty good most of the time, but still there's this accusation, this feeling that God must have long ago forsaken the planet we live on and no longer has anything to do with our day-to-day lives. And we just curse him. Because things are hard. And if he was loving and if he was here, if he, you know, if he was anywhere near us, it wouldn't be this way. And you see, Isaiah 7 and Matthew 1 really capture the crisis so many of us live with in our own lives. But they also give us a window into the hope that can be ours too. That at the moment of our greatest need, we can look beyond our circumstances to what God has promised to do in us and through us and around us. Isaiah is offering Ahaz in Isaiah 7 a sign to increase his faith against his circumstances. The message the Lord sent Ahaz to deliver to the or sent Isaiah to deliver the king was this in Isaiah 7 4. Be quiet. Do not fear. Do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrand. I mean, he's saying to Isaiah, you're knotted up all over these guys, these, these two little kings, and they're little tiny embers that are left after the fire has gone out compared to me. I am the Lord. You should be awed by me, not by them. Now, here's what we're learning here. Is that a lot of times there's a gap in our lives between the promises of God in the reality of our circumstances. There's just this gap that exists between what God has promised over here, all these amazing promises that we read in Scripture about what God, God says He will do for us and through us and around us, and yet there's the reality of our circumstances and there's this huge gap in between those two things and, and it's just not always, you know, you don't always know what to make of that. So, for example, you're raising your kids and there's all of these Beautiful promises of what God says he's going to do through you as you parent your children towards obedience. And and then there's the reality of a child. Anybody with me? Right? And there's rebellion and there's sin and there's um, there's dirty looks and there's conniving behind the scenes manipulation Right. And so there's there's this disconnect or for for me, you know, there's all these beautiful things of the scripture as a pastor. The scripture says, you know, the church triumphant, that the church is going to be filled with people who are full of the Holy Spirit and, and the gates of hell cannot stand it. You know, we can charge hell with a water pistol. And then you look at the church. That doesn't exactly line up. You see, I mean, there's all these places of disconnect. And I think I think you can feel that with me. 
And there are really two options when you find yourself in this crisis. You can stare at the disconnect and you can despair. I mean, you can become cynical and hard-hearted and discouraged or just give up. You can pack it in. And that's what happens to a lot of us. <clears throat> or you can look at that and you can hope. I mean, you can find joy and peace and courage to persevere, to not give up, even in the greatest crisis. You see, fear and worry and disappointment and discouragement is rooted in unbelief. It's looking at this. It's looking at God's promises <clears throat> and then at the reality of the situation And it's tying our emotional life to the reality of our circumstances and not to God and his power and what he says he's going to do. That's where those things come from. So hope, then, hope is rooted. Hope is the exact opposite. Hope is looking at God's promises and then the current reality of our lives. And it's anchoring our emotional life to God's promises and not to the current reality and believing that he is great enough to overcome anything. Hope. Is, is a deep assurance, it's a confidence, it's a certainty. The Bible uses the word hope in the completely opposite way we normally use it in our culture. You know, when we talk about I'm hoping for, it means I really don't think it's going to happen, but maybe somehow. I'm in the grocery store yesterday with my Florida State hat on, about 320, and the guy that's checking me out says, boy, I bet you're hoping they win today. Yeah, I don't think we, you know, not likely. All right, Tim Tebow. Power of the Most High resides upon him. And the Red Sea parts as he trounces into the end zone. Right? What was he saying? <clears throat> I bet you're hoping. Boy, there's not much of a shot. But man, maybe you've got hope. See, he's saying, I know you're not certain. I know it's probably unlikely. But maybe you can find, you know, can you hope? See, the Bible uses hope completely different. It's not, hope is not uncertainty. Hope is certainty despite the reality of my circumstances. And so if you're cynical and are hard-hearted, you've lost heart, if you're ready to quit, here's the deal. You're still not believing the gospel. Paul says the gospel is the power of God for salvation. Romans 1, Jesus has the power to justify the guiltiest sinner and to change and to transform any person, any marriage, any city, any society. And so cynicism is contrary to the truth of the gospel. It's a failure to believe the gospel. But by contrast, if you've got hope, I mean, if you can look at the mess that we've made of things and all of the sin and all of the sadness that characterize our lives, if you can, you can be disappointed or frustrated or even angry at the present circumstances that you find yourself in, but not fall apart. Not give in to despair or cynicism. You can hope because you know it's not the end of the story. But God's at work. So the reason we know this is that the 400 years of silence in Matthew 1, thank you, Jonathan, were broken by the sound of a baby crying in a cattle stall in an insignificant little town called Bethlehem. This is the story of a baby born into the world to give us So you see, here at the beginning of the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew is reasoning with us. He's trying to bring us to hope by connecting the birth of Jesus with the prophecy in Isaiah 7.14. And he's saying the words of the prophet were fulfilled. Now, here's where it gets kind of hard because we have to look a little closer at the context in Isaiah 7, okay? So will you go there with me? I mean, if you have to turn back in your, in your worship folder to the call to worship, do that. And I want you to see how this works itself out. 
Okay, I've said in Isaiah 7, there are two kings, Rezin of Syria and Pekah from the northern part of Israel. And they've made an alliance against Judah to destroy it. Ahaz loses hope. His heart shakes like the trees in a windstorm. And so the Lord sends Isaiah to give him a sign. Now, you know what a sign is, don't you? A sign is something that points to something else. A sign is an indication. It's a, it's a physical representation of the intangible promise of God. He sends a sign, and the sign, he says, would be a child who would be born. And then he says in verse 16, Isaiah 7, Before the boy knows how to refuse evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. In other words, by the time this child is old enough to understand right and wrong, so maybe two years old, God would wipe out Syria and Israel. The child will be the sign of God's power to save and of his promise to come and to, and to take care of these threats. He would be a sign to Ahaz that God is more powerful than any enemy that might come against him and therefore that he should be feared. That he would be with Ahaz. If only Ahaz would trust him and give his faith and his allegiance to him. Now, what may be a new thought to you, and what's fascinating is that most scholars, and I tend to agree with them, see an initial fulfillment of this prophecy in the next chapter, and you can look at it later, where Isaiah has a son, and here, how about this name? The name is Maher Shalal Hashbaz. Thought about naming my son that, my wife told me no. <clears throat> kind of a mouthful. And I couldn't come up with a really good, like, little, you know, nickname. But they, he's also called Emmanuel. He, the son that is born to the prophet, is the sign not only of the Lord's promise and intent to save those who trust him, but also, and here's the trick, of the judgment against those who will not. So Isaiah says in Isaiah 15 that this child who is to be born, who will be a sign, he will eat curds and honey. That's a description of the food of affliction we might say he's on a bread and water diet, right? As a way of describing punishment. So curds and honey. Isaiah is saying there's going to be a child. And before that child is very old, Rezin and Pekah are going to be wiped out. But it's going to be because a greater nation, Assyria, is coming. And they'll wipe them out. But guess what? They're going to wipe you out too if you don't repent. Now, here's what Matthew's saying. Here's what Matthew's doing. He's connecting the birth of that child in Isaiah's day with the birth of Jesus and saying that ultimately what God was trying to teach Ahaz and the people of Israel at that time can only be understood, understood in the birth of the baby in Bethlehem. The child promised in Isaiah 7 was to be a sign of God's favor and presence and power to save. But this baby that Matthew's telling us about, this baby was altogether different. In this baby, God himself was coming to dwell with his people and to bring salvation. Now, there's a familiar pattern here, isn't there? If you look in Matthew 1, Something really big is up here. There are a couple of things. A womb is being opened. And it's connected with an angelic announcement. So three times in the Old Testament where this happened with Sarah, who became the mother of Abraham, with Hannah, who became the mother of Samuel, and with Manoah's wife, who became the mother of Samson. Three times a barren womb or a womb that should not bear children is being supernaturally opened by the Lord and the event is being connected to an angelic announcement of the birth. It always means that God is up to something really big. It's a pattern of deliverance for God's people. And in Matthew's account, the angel, if you look there, tells Joseph very specifically to name this child Jesus. And then he gives the rationale 
for the naming of the child, for he, verse 21, will save his people from their sins. Now, Jesus is the Greek form of the word Joshua, which means Yahweh saves. A very fitting name for Messiah. He is Jesus the Christ. He's the Messiah. He's Yahweh who comes to save. Now, the child promised in Isaiah 7 was a sign of God's salvation from political enemies. It's interesting that this came to be the general expectation of Israel when they imagined the Messiah, that he would come and that he would be a military leader who would lead the nation to victory over their political enemies, whoever they might be, in this case, Rome. But the angel clarifies and he says that's not his mission. Look at verse 21. He comes to save his people from their sins. Now, if you look closely in Christian circles today, and I've just got to make you aware of this, you will see this very thing playing itself out. Believe in Jesus and he will change your circumstances. You know, but that's not what the Bible teaches. And if you think Jesus saving you means he's going to protect you from everything that might harm you, and if you think that it means he's personally committed to your happiness and comfort, you're going to be terribly disappointed. He's come to save us from our sins. And most of the time, hear me when I say this, most of the time what that means is it means the only way he can get that work done is to not change your circumstances. His goal is not to change your circumstances. It is to change you in the midst of your circumstances. It's to produce character in you, to make you deal with your heart, with the inner motivations and the desires that are in there and to get the root to the root of all the malfunction in your life and in the world. You see, the coming of Jesus, as we're told here by the angel, redefines our true slave master because he's coming to save us from our sins and not our circumstances. Remember, Jesus can change anything. He can change anybody. We've said that, but the angel's words help us see that the starting place is always with me. Now, whatever God is doing in all the chaos and the conflict of my life, He's going to start by doing it in me. And that's really good because I'll be honest with you, I'm tempted always to think the problem with my life is circumstantial and it never is. You know, you know as much as I hate to admit it, it's not my in-laws who are crazy demanding during the holidays. Right? It's not my job that I hate or that I have no job. It's not, you know, if only I could have a different house or if I could only have a different set of friends or whatever that's not the problem the problem is our constant foolish insistence upon doing things in our own strength and for our own glory and that's what the bible calls sin it is a besetting self-centeredness that destroys the fabric of what god has made and that's why he came to save you and that's what he came to save you from and possibly and quite possibly this is why so many people misunderstood him during his ministry and why people still misunderstand him today Because if you think he's come to save you from your circumstances, well, it makes sense that you would imagine him to be a mighty warrior, fierce and strong, or a military leader of some sort, or a hero. But if you can see that he came to save you from your sins, then it makes sense to see him hanging naked and bloody and beaten on a cross. And for many who were around him, the cross signaled his mission had failed. But for those who understood, the cross signaled his triumph. You see, like the child in Isaiah, he too ate curds and honey, the food of affliction. I mean, Jesus ate the food of affliction, but not because of his sins, but because of our sins. Saving us from our sins 
ultimately meant dying in our place to satisfy the wrath of God against sin. The implication of the gospel is this. And what we see happening on the cross is the father turns away from him. He cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The father forsakes him. He turns his back on him. He deserts him. He walks away from him so he could look at us and say, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. And if you see Jesus forsaken and abandoned and being consumed by the wrath of God in your place, then no matter what crisis you might be going through, no matter you know how big the disconnect might be, no matter how desperate your circumstances might become, you can be sure that God's love and his presence will see you through. It's not the end of the story. God's doing something greater in you and through you and around you. Now, let me to close offer a warning to you. <clears throat> if that's why we need a Savior and if that's what the work of the Savior is, then here's the implication. If Jesus then is not saving you from your sins, he's not saving you. If he's not slowly over time making you less selfish and less irritable, praise the Lord. If he's not, you know, producing in you the fruit of the spirit, you may admire him, but you haven't hoped in him yet. He is Emmanuel. He is God with us. I mean, that's Matthew's claim. I mean, if you say you're a Christian, then that means that you believe that God came to earth in Jesus. But not only that, think about this. That means you believe that he has come to dwell in you and has begun a renovation project from the inside out. The child promised in Isaiah 7 was a sign of God's presence and favor. But Jesus, the scripture teaches us, was God himself come to be with his people and to work salvation for them. And I want to be very I want to be very clear. If you're not a Christian, especially if you're here and you're new to Christianity, I want to say we believe this story is true. This is a miracle. You with me? This is a miracle. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, a baby was formed in a womb of a woman who had not been with a man and therefore could not be pregnant. You think this is what we celebrate. God was born. That's the most amazing thing. I mean, you can't, there's no words. I mean, do you hear me stumbling? And so Frederick Beekner, who's just great about the way he puts things, he writes, if you do not hear in the message of Christmas something that must strike some as blasphemy and others as sheer fantasy, the chances are you've not heard the message for what it is, Emmanuel. I mean, when... when Quirinius was governor of Syria, he writes, in a town called Bethlehem, a child was born who beyond the power of anyone to account for was the high and lofty one made low and helpless. The one who inhabits eternity comes to dwell in time. The one whom none can look upon and live is delivered in a stable under the soft and different gaze of cattle. The father of all mercies put himself at our mercy. And so Joy Williams rightly sings, she says, it's still a mystery to me that the hands of God can be so small. How tiny fingers reaching in the night were the very hands that measured the sky. It's still a mystery to me, she says, how his infant eyes had seen the dawn of time. How his ears had heard an angel symphony. And still, Mary had to rock her Savior to sleep. It's a mystery.
But be very clear, what Matthew's claiming and what all of the Scripture claims is in Jesus, God has come to be with us. There's all kinds of implications that I don't have time to get in that I wish I did. If He's here with us, then obviously that means He's not far away. Because the wrath of God fell upon Jesus upon the cross, He can look at you and say, I will never leave you. Jesus stood on the mount as He ascended to the Father and said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to Me. Therefore, go and make disciples and surely I will be with you until the end of the age. He's near. He's not far away. He's not abandoned us. And the more you come to believe that, you see the more it will produce hope. Because if He's God with us, and if He's near and not far away, then that changes everything. And that changes everything. And so let me just, to close, very quickly offer you three applications as you think about what it means to make sense of this doctrine of the incarnation that God has come in Jesus to be with us. Let me just three things, and I'm just very quickly. He, number one, if he truly is God with us, is there anything he can't do in you and through you and around you? I mean, is there anyone that he can't bring to repentance? I mean, do you have any other true appropriate response to him than hope? He's God with you. But secondly, if he truly is God with us, then think about this with me. Then our lukewarm response to him is not rational. I mean, it's not normal. I mean, John Stott says he, he looked at the Gospels and he said there are only three responses to Jesus. Everybody who came across Jesus had one of three responses. Either, number one, they were terrified of him and they ran away. Or number two, they hated him and they wanted to kill him. Or number three, they worshipped him and fell on their knees and gave him everything. But this tepid, lukewarm response that he often gets in the church in America these days, it's not rational. God was born. You can't yawn at that. And number three. If he is God with us, then think of what he's done to get with you. Think of what he's done to get with you. And let me ask you a question. What are you doing to get with him? What's keeping you from him? I'm reading Paul Miller's book, A Praying Life. He makes this great point. He says, you know, you don't experience God. You get to know him. And he is a person. What's keeping you from being near him? What would it cost you to be with him? An hour? You know, another hour every day? Another night of the week? What is it that would keep you from getting with him? Whatever it might cost you, it's nothing to compared to what it cost him to get with you. Look at what he's done to get with you. Claw your way through anything to get with him. He clawed his way through heaven and earth to get with you. What's keeping you from getting with him? Because you see that, after all, if he is God with us, Emmanuel, that is what Christmas is about. So let's pray. Father, we have come into things that are too wonderful for us to even understand. This story that we read boggles the imagination. It is beyond our ability to make sense of, except that you are greater than our experience and you do things that we can't possibly fathom. And all that is left for us to do is to stare with mouths open and wonder that into our hopelessness and our despair and our cynicism and our fear, you have stepped 
all the way from heaven, you have come into earth, come to earth to deal with our cynicism and our and our fear and to give us hope. That no matter what circumstances we find ourselves in, they are nothing in comparison to your ability to save. And so this morning, as we sing light of the world, you stepped into darkness. We're here to worship you. You're the most beautiful. Would you come? Would you captivate us by the glory and the wonder of a baby born in Bethlehem who is God in flesh? And would it produce worship? And would that that worship turn to hope? And would that be to your glory? We pray in your name. Amen. Amen. Again, let me say thank you for being here to worship with us. And thank you for your patience. Um, Not bad for a first Sunday. We've got a lot of work to do. Things are going to be different in the coming weeks. There's going to be a playground out back. There should be a screen and some new sound system in here and lots of things coming. So thank you for being here uh, and being with us. Now, I wonder... I wonder what circumstances you're leaving here to go home to. I wonder what crisis uh, God has put you in uh, to teach you hope. If we're going to be faithful, if we're going to accomplish the mission that we believe God has given us in our city, we have to be a people who can hope. And so that's why the benediction at the end of the service is so powerful. If you, tr- if you really believe, if you can really believe in your heart the truth and the reality of the coming of Jesus into the world and His going to the cross for your sins, then you can hear, you can hear the assurance that will bring hope to your heart when I raise my hands and, and speak of God's promise to go with you and to be with you and to turn His face towards you no matter what circumstances you leave here and go into. So, in light of that, Find hope this morning in the benediction. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make His face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn His face towards you and give you His peace both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in His peace.